Great. Thanks very much indeed, Joe. Keep that open. And uh, tonight we'll continue this series. This is the second in the series tonight, looking at Jesus in the upper room, that room where he had that last conversation, that last farewell words, and the Last Supper as well with his disciples. Let's pray as we look at that together, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word we just heard read, and we pray that you'll give us by your spirit for whom we've just prayed, to whom we've just prayed, that we may hear and receive and be soft-hearted and transformed to go and love and serve and sacrifice as you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you saw that very striking picture this week of a victorious Donald Trump looking slightly smug, or very smug, having been acquitted of lying and bribery on a global scale. Uh, And maybe you saw Nancy Pelosi, who was his Democrat opponent, standing right behind him, looking a little less pleased about it. But it certainly reinforces that idea that we often get, that in the world we live in, uh, power always wins. Certain people hold the power. And uh, other people, the kind of ordinary people, are just overlooked and neglected. The elite and the marginalised. Usually Christians, I think we feel we're on the the weak side of of that balance, aren't we? Um, Christians have not usually been the the people with all the power looking right the way through history. It goes right back, actually, the early critic of Christianity called Celsus, who complained that this faith, Christianity, seemed to draw to itself people who were stupid, ignorant, and weak. So if you follow Christ tonight, you're in good company there, if you're like me. And to many people, Jesus actually, doesn't he? He seems weak in compared with the, the great, powerful figures of human history, the generals and the emperors that we've seen. And you might think, well, why did this Messiah, so-called, become someone who ended up being crucified and before that betrayed by one of his own friends? Where did it all go wrong? And when we read John's Gospel, we find actually the opposite's the case. His betrayal and death have nothing to do with him being weak or, in the end, powerless, though they may appear that way. So, how does John's Gospel work so far? Well, just a a quick sketch of the shape of the whole Gospel, um, because we are now in chapter 13. Chapter 1 is an introduction, and then from then on through to the end of chapter 12, you, you get a series of teaching and signs, miracles Jesus performs, showing who he is. People asking the question, who is this? Where does he come from? And having discovered that he's the Son of God come from heaven, John 13, he begins, as it were, to make his exit again. Having come into earth, he begins to turn his eyes back towards heaven. And the question, where is he going to, having come down from heaven Where's he returning to? And we look at that tonight, and we'll see uh, there's actually two stages. One is he's going first to his death on the cross, and only then is he going to be raised and returned to glory in heaven. And then uh, you see chapters 18 to 20, Jesus dies, the crucifixion and the resurrection, fulfilling what he's promised, and then the conclusion at the end. So we're going to see tonight, as we now just focus in and drill down into John 13, from verse 18, the section we had read, Two particular things Jesus keeps saying in this whole section 13 to 17. We'll keep coming back to this. One is this. He is preparing his disciples 
for his impending death, which is going to be a shock for them. And he's therefore preparing us. He's also preparing his followers for their mission that will follow on after. And we'll see in these two sections tonight, and they do break, if your Bible's the same as mine, into those two, 18 to 30, and then 31 to 38, those two sections, his betrayal, and then what he says about his death, we'll see the wonder of his love, and we'll see also the glory of his death. The wonder of his love, the glory of his death. So the first section, 18 to 30, I've called this the wonder of his love. Jesus displays an incredible foreknowledge, doesn't he, in verse 18 there. And let me just read that. He says to his disciples, the 12 disciples, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me or raised his heel against me. Quoting Psalm 41, Psalm of David, saying in David's words, Jesus knew his betrayal would be by one of his friends. Using the words of David, Jesus takes them as his own and says, my own friend who shared my bread has turned against me. His betrayal prophesied in the Old Testament. And you get, so that's a kind of a cloaked prediction of that betrayal. We know it's going to be Judas. And then he's a bit more open with a cast-iron promise that follows straight on. That was the bad news. Here's the good news. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when I'm betrayed, you may believe that I am who I am. You'll think, aha, he told us this, and it's from David. It's, it's, it's from the Spirit in the Old Testament. Truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I, I send accepts me. So that's you guys. As I send you as disciples, and later through them, us as Christians to the world, to tell the world about him. Anyone who accepts you accepts me. Great promise, isn't it? What a promise. That we're ambassadors of the king. And whoever accepts me, says Jesus the son, accepts the father who sent me. It's actually a really wise thing he's doing here, if you think about it. He knows that that the betrayal, the fall of Judas from grace, this close friend betraying Jesus, could destroy the faith of many others as well, when they see what's happened. So he encourages them with this promise that he sends them to the world with the dignity of being his ambassadors. Whoever accepts you, accepts me. You're not on your own. Then he thinks about the betrayal again, and and we discover that he's he's agonized in spirit, verse 21, as he's facing what's about to happen here with his love, but also an agonized love, for the first time, he openly talks about his betrayal. Truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And he looks around. It is the face, almost certainly, just of these close friends, the 12 disciples. And they're pictured in this famous painting on the screen, which is actually pictured in the wooden carving behind me here. One of you is going to betray me. And they, they look and they kind of go, what, me? Surely not me. Or surely not him or him. We, we all love you. John tells us they are baffled. They're at a loss to know 
Not quite what he means, because he's been clear, but who he means. Which of us could it be? How can one of your closest friends betray you? Okay, so a bit about dining customs in the Middle East in Jesus' day. We learn here that they were reclining. That's because they'd picked up a Roman custom of lying on your sort of left elbow in order to eat your food at a banquet, a feast like this. And if you lie on your left elbow with your kind of feet out away from the table, from the food, that means that your head is going to be close to the chest of the person on your left behind you. And the head of the person to your right will be quite close to your chest. If you have that in your mind, uh, and it's not pictured in this painting because this was a medieval painting, they didn't think about that then, it makes sense of what John tells us happened next. John, the eyewitness, saw and heard this. Verse 23, the disciple Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus on his right, that means, his head resting almost on Jesus' chest. Probably this is autobiographical. John is the man on Jesus' right. Picture there with the long hair, probably in the painting, on Jesus' right. Peter catches his eye, pictured in the painting, probably is that the bearded guy with the white hair. Ask him what he means, says Peter. So John quietly, because this is very sensitive stuff, isn't it, leans back and says, Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, probably whispering, the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread. So that's the little private conversation that's happened. Now it goes public. And John is watching what happens next. It was usual, second bit of cultural detail, to honour the guests at your feast by the host offering them a piece of food. Jesus is the host. The honoured guest will be on your left. Possibly it's actually Judas that's on his left as he does this. But anyway, he takes a piece of bread, dips it, and he passes it in an act of deep honour and love to his favourite guest. Who is who? Judas, his betrayer. Wondrous love, isn't it? He knows what this man is going to do. He's been looking in his eye for months and years, knowing this is going to come. Now the moment's coming. He looks him in the eye again and offers him the bread in love. So the words that Jesus shares with John are secret, but this action of honour and love is public for all to see. Judas, true to character, just takes it and says, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm the honour guest. It's be like at a birthday party, we'd, we'd give the birthday person the biggest piece of cake. It's that kind of thing. And he takes it, and as we hear, he makes his exit to do his work. The devil's already sown the seed of betrayal in his heart, and this moment seems to seal it for him. And he takes possession of Judas's heart. From that moment, for Judas, repentance is now impossible. The die is cast, the clock is ticking. Jesus knows that in this extraordinary act of love to Judas... He's also sealed his own fate. Nothing will stop it happening now. Judas must go, make his plot, arrange the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus will die because of Judas. Now, often people will show incredible acts of courage 
in a moment of danger and impasse, you know, like a, a passerby who will grapple with a knife-wielding terrorist in the street and perhaps suffer horrendous injuries in order to save other people. Tremendous heroism. Real courage, isn't it? But it's kind of impulsive. You didn't see that coming when you got up that morning, did you? Let alone the month before, the year before, years before. Jesus watched this moment coming for years. He's known his scriptures. That psalm, my friend whom I, who's close to me, who shared my bread, has turned against me. And he's seen this coming, and he still has the love for his friends, and even for Judas, to go ahead with it. So I can ask you tonight, perhaps you're someone and you perhaps have never heard before of just how much Christ loves us. He loves so much that he not only took human form, having lived in eternity as God's son, became a frail human being, he not only spent those three years trudging around Palestine in the dust with these 12 followers... But he was even prepared to suffer humiliating betrayal at the hands of people whom he had made and shame and flogging and ultimately crucifixion because he loved you and me. Wondrous love. And he even loves his enemy and honors him in his betrayal. If you are someone that's... Searching for that love. How do I find that love? How do I know God loves me? Do again, just come to that Discover course I mentioned earlier uh, on Thursday evenings, the next few weeks. Come and find out who Jesus is, how much he loves you and why he died for us. Wondrous love. Maybe there's someone here just needs reminding how powerful temptation and the devil can be and how we need to turn to Christ and ask his help to follow him and love him in return. Sure, Judas' betrayal is unique. He has this tragic position in Jesus' destiny. But the devil's still alive, and he prowls around today, we're told by Peter, looking for people that he can devour and lead astray. He's there in our, in our paths, our workplaces, our thoughts, all the time. He looks for hearts, a little like Judas's, that are ready to be hardened to the love of Jesus. So let's pray against him. Let's pray for Christ to protect us and keep us strong and keep us faithful to love him. So you get to verse 30 and this massive turning point. Judas has just gone. The door's clicked shut. It's dark outside. And then Jesus turns and comes out with perhaps the key verse of this whole section. Verse 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. The Son of Man is glorified. Glory in the Bible, it's a hard idea to put your, your got a head around, isn't it? It's, it's God's splendor, particularly when human beings encounter and experience it. The Son of Man is glorified. People finally see the glory of Jesus. And Jesus has already given hints of his glory. He's done these signs that point to how glorious he is, the goodness, the power of God at work in him. But he's known that till now, it's been a, very much a, a little glimpse, 
a veiled glory. He says, now it's public. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God the Father, because Father and Son are one, is glorified in him. The time has come. The departure of Judas has set the, top click, uh, the clock ticking. And it's now going to be inexorable and rapid unfolding of Judas's exit, my betrayal, my trial, my crucifixion. Now, he says, this is my moment, not of shame or of weakness or of tragedy or of failure. This is my moment of glory. The cross is the glory of Jesus, his love made fully visible. Now, that is a bit remarkable. When you think, can this be right? Surely he means his resurrection's the time of glory or his ascension to heaven. He'll be glorified in heaven. Yes, he will. But no, he's saying now. As the door clicks shut, now in my coming crucifixion is my glory. You will see the depth of my love as I give my life for you there on the cross. That's how much I love you. That's his glory. Because in the cross, the Father and Son are glorified. We see how splendid, how beautiful, how good they are. Because the cross where Jesus dies shows God's wisdom his justice, that he pays the price of sin, his faithfulness, he keeps his promises, and supremely his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son loved us so much that he died for us. John Calvin, the great pastor, put it this way about the cross. He says, in the cross of Christ, as in a great theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. See the idea? The cross is like watching God's play unfold. It shows us the goodness of God incomparably before everything. He says, the glory of God shines never more brightly than on the cross. Jesus then follows that extraordinary statement, looking to the future, the glory of his death, with his second shocking statement. He says... Verse 33, my children, I'll be with you no, uh, only a little longer. You will look for me, as I told the Jews, the Jewish leaders, so I'll tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So again, he's talking about his death, his destiny, where he's heading to. The Son of Man is glorified. I'm going to say goodbye to you soon. And where I'm going, you can't come. So that's the question, is it, for the disciples immediately? Well, what's he mean? Um, where's he going? That he, can, that he says, I cannot come too. It's, it's a bit like a parent, isn't it, when a parent goes away for the weekend and leaves the kids to look after each other and, and says to them, look, I'm going to be away for a bit. Whilst I'm away, don't squabble. He's saying to these 12, isn't he, um, I'm going to be away. Where I'm going, you can't come. So, verse 34, don't squabble. I have a new commandment for you that, as you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Your task when I'm gone is just this. Don't worry about building church buildings, putting together action plans, changing the world. Let God do that. Um, just love each other. That's your job. A new commandment. As in English, in the original, the, that word as, as I have loved you, it can mean both in the same way as I have loved you, 
and because I've loved you. And he's saying both probably here. He's saying love each other in self-sacrifice like mine and love each other in response to the love I've shown you myself. When he says love each other, think about what he's saying there. He's not saying to us, as we think we hear the word love, have warm feelings for each other. Because we think of of love simply as as romantic feeling, don't we? Uh, You know, Peter, uh, just just feel really cozy towards John. Uh, And I know he's your brother, but Andrew as well. He's not saying, he's actually saying love in the biblical sense of love in how you act towards each other, how you speak to each other with kindness, not slander. How you're generous to each other and not selfish with each other. Love as I've loved you. Why, though, new commandment? If you know your Bible at all, you might remember that the command to love your neighbor is not only quoted by Jesus in the Gospels, it actually goes back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. So why does you say new commandment? Well, if you look closely, there is a difference here. Jesus makes the command to love others narrower. The old commandment said, love your neighbor. That just, in the Bible, just means anyone. Whoever walks by tomorrow, love them. Jesus narrows it and says, love each other, pointing to his disciples. Love your fellow Christ followers. So he narrows this down. He's not saying don't love the world. But he's saying start by loving each other. So it's narrower. It's also actually more intense. It's, it's a deeper commandment. It's new because it's for each other. And it's new because it's deeper. Because he says, as I've loved you. And if you think about it, he's loved them by doing what? By, in the end, his glory, dying on the cross. I've loved you, he says, because I've shed my blood for you. Now, go and do the same. Do you see how deep, how intense, how challenging this love is? It's narrow, but it's also deeper and more intense for us. Love one another as I've loved you. And by this, he says, something powerful begins to happen. Verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's a powerful thing when people start to see the kindness Christians show each other, the integrity, the faithfulness, the kept promises, the the generosity of spirit, the refusal to slander, the self-sacrifice. They'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. Maybe you've got one of those Christian bumper stickers on your car uh, that declares you're a Christian. God loves you, etc. Uh, maybe you have a, a cross around your neck to declare you're a Christian. Those are great things, great ways to show that you follow Jesus. But he says there's a far greater sign, and it's this, that you love each other. That's what people will see. That's what will change the world. One writer called Tertullian testified that the pagan people around them in the early church came to know just how special Christian communities, churches, were. And they marveled about them. See how these Christians, probably finish it, can't you? Love each other. That's what blew them away. That's what drew them to Christ. 
So back in our passage, Peter hates the idea of Jesus leaving them. He's still resisting. He asks again, Jesus, you know, where are you going? Jesus gives the same answer. Uh, Where I'm going, you can't come. And then he adds, until later. Because on one hand, Jesus has to go to the glory of his death alone. Only he can atone for the sins of the world. He has to go there alone. He has to bring redemption and forgiveness and adoption into God's family for us all. Only he can do that. But also, he says, Peter, you can follow, but later. Once I've risen, we will meet again. Once I've returned to glory in heaven, one day you will join me there. But later. So poor Peter, uh, he's kind of going berserk now, isn't he? And he just goes, okay, just Jesus, uh, anything. Um, I'll lay down my life for you. You talk about death and sacrifice and doing what you do. I'll do it myself. I'll go where you go. And so rash his promises, so unaware of his own of human ignorance, Peter, that he can't possibly go where Jesus goes. Only Jesus has the love and the courage to do that, that Jesus has to warn him that actually he'll end up denying Jesus before he starts following him three times. So as I wrap up in the next few minutes now, in churches today, we so often, we, we prize new, don't we? We prize new music. Uh, and we've had some great music tonight. We, pri- we prize new skills, new ideas, new programs. But Jesus says what counts most of all as new, and it's always, it's always fresh, is that we love each other. The new commandment. That will never expire. It's always new. I think when I was searching for God as a new member of the youth group here, as a teenager, and I was persuaded to become a Christian when I was 17. Yes, because the Bible began to make sense. Yes, because I was told for the first time that I, even I could be forgiven. Proud, arrogant little me. He died for me too. Yes, but I also became a Christian because I saw the quality of love between the people in the youth group. That special acceptance and affection and self-sacrifice. This is how the world knows that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving each other uh, in our church, in our small group, in our student group, uh, at CU. It's not just an aspiration that Jesus offers. It's a command, isn't it? It's the one thing he's told us. It's not a feeling, it's a spirit-directed action. The great Bishop Ryle said this as a challenge to us. He said, how far from satisfactory is the state of those who are content with sound doctrinal opinions while in their daily life they give way to ill-temper, ill-nature, malice, envy, quarreling, bickering, surliness and crossness of word and manner. Such persons, he says, are daily proclaiming that they are not Christ's followers. Love one another. But here's my last thought for us. As we look at Jesus and those words, now is the Son of Man glorified, can I ask you tonight, when did you last just pause and wonder with thanks at the glory of Jesus that he gave his life on the cross? At the glory of the love he shows there, giving all 
for us. He who didn't deserve that end, dying for we who didn't deserve that grace. How easily we focused up as Christians on maybe the challenges we face, and there are often many, or even on just what he does for us, the blessings we get from him. And we don't pause and first of all stop to wonder with praise at the love he's shown us. That's why music in church is such a gift, because that's one way we can wonder at the glory of his death. A few weeks ago, an art historian was visiting an old country house and came across a small wooden carved bust sitting in a dark corner on top of a wardrobe in a bedroom. He asked to have it brought down and asked about where it came from. and said, oh, this, the owner bought that for £10 in the 1940s. nothing special. It's a kind of early 20th century wood carving of the Virgin Mary holding a little sheep. And he looked at it and he thought, no, this is, this is actually of, of higher quality. And he investigated it and it turned out this cheap wood carving was actually a priceless masterpiece tucked on the top of that wardrobe all those years. One of a set of four, the other three being in museums in the United States now. This one was a carving of St. Agnes holding a sheep done by someone called Niklaus van Leyden. Many think the greatest sculptor in Northern Europe in the 15th century and it's worth millions of pounds. What looks to us ordinary, dusty in the corner there can sometimes be spectacularly valuable. And the cross looks to the world, doesn't it, like weakness, like folly, like shame, a failure. Actually, it's what Christ calls his glory. So what an unexpected treasure the cross of Christ is, what wondrous love he shows, what glory his death is. The place of shame, we thought, is actually the throne of glory and the supreme example of his love. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that willingly and lovingly went to betrayal, even honoring your enemy as a friend. And you did all of that for us. And we pray that we may see you as you are, glorified, not only on the cross, but now risen and ascended at the Father's side. May your glory fill our hearts with wonder. And may your love fill our lives. Love for each other. Love for all to whom you send us. In Jesus' name. Amen.